This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. I'm so honored to be speaking to my next guest, who pretty much is considered by everyone in the biz to be the godfather of travel writing. If I mentioned all of Don George's accolades and awards, we'd be here all day, so I'll have to point out just a few. Don has edited nine wonderful anthologies. He's written the definitive how-to book about travel writing called Lonely Planet's Guide to Travel Writing. He's the editor-at-large and book review columnist for National Geographic Traveler. He's the special features editor and blogger at Gadling, and much, much more. Let's listen to how Don caught the travel bug, and let's become inspired by his words of wisdom that he's learned throughout an illustrious career and life. Don, I don't even know where to begin with you because you've got such a rich history in travel and travel writing, and you kind of blow my mind. So let's just start from the beginning as far as how did you even catch the travel bug? I caught the travel bug when I was really young, and my parents loved to travel. Every summer we would go somewhere. We went to Canada. We went down to South Carolina. Travel was important to them, and they weren't taking us on like around the world trips, but we always made time to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the notion that travel was like an integral part of life sort of got planted back then. And they took me on my first trip abroad the spring of my junior year in college, because I was going to go to Paris the summer between my junior and senior years in college, and they knew that. So they took me and my brother to Paris and London for a spring break. And that was my first experience abroad, and it was really intoxicating. I loved London and Paris, especially Paris. And then I went to Paris on my own and on a Princeton summer work abroad program, mm -hmm. the summer between junior and senior year, and just loved it. It was very magical and magnificent and intoxicating. And I came back to school, and I graduated from university. And then I went to Paris again on the same program for the summer after I graduated. And I fell in love with Paris, and really my life changed that summer. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because so many people get that travel bug from an early age because their parents instilled it in them. It's yeah, totally. really a blessing that they do that for us. Hugely, hugely. And yeah. Now that I'm a parent, it's been a big part of my sense of what I can give to my kids. Mm -hmm. is that notion of happily, professionally, I had to take them with me yeah. on my trips. I mean, they were, I was traveling. They were great companions to have on the trips when they were really young. But they just grew up with this sense that travel is what you do. Travel mm -hmm. is part of what you do as a human being. And the fact that things are different in other places is very acceptable. It's very understandable. It's very much a part of what the world is all about. And so they're really great travelers now. And they're I think they're kind of like bigger, broader human beings because they have that sense that, oh yeah, people there are like that and people there believe that and people there wear those kinds of clothes and we're all part of this big, wonderful stew of humanity. It's not like, oh, there's one way to do things. Mm -hmm. That's how we grew up doing them, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So how did you decide you wanted to be a travel writer? I didn't really decide I wanted to be a travel writer. <laughs> no, <it didn't. laughs> it came to me. Uh, I wanted to be a poet. Huh. At Princeton, I majored in English and comparative literature. Mm -hmm. and I took a bunch of creative writing classes, and I loved poetry, and I would tell people that I was going to be a poet, and I loved the sound of that. 
when I graduated, I didn't know what to do with my life and didn't want to do what all my friends were doing, which was going to grad school or going into banking or going into you know, medical school or law school. None of those were what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to the Princeton Summer Work Abroad program. And then I had gotten a fellowship to teach at Athens College in Greece for a year. Oh, wow. So I postponed any like real world decisions and went to Greece for a year and traveled and taught and had an amazing time. And when that year was coming to a close, I still had, so now I had to again you know, encounter that question, what am I going to do with my life? And I still wanted to postpone it as much as possible. I ended up getting into graduate schools in comparative literature, which was like one pathway I could follow and I could sort of see myself as a Tweedy professor somewhere yeah, sure. teaching literature. <laughs> and then the other path, I got into creative writing graduate schools and I literally spent one night in Athens, I'll never forget, I just stayed up all night because I had to decide which path am I going to choose. And somehow by the time you know, dawn rose in Attica, <laughs> I said, I'm going to be a writer. I just want to be a writer. I have to at least give myself the chance to let that dream you know, blossom. If mm -hmm. it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if I go to graduate school, I see where that path is going and something about the writerness is more appealing to me. So I went to graduate school, but still thinking I was going to be a poet. So I did poetry was my, my graduate school. I did a master's thesis, which was a book of poems oh, called wow. Finding a Place. Huh. So I got my master's degree, and again, there was like, what am I going to do with my life? And I managed to postpone it two more years because Princeton has this thing called the Princeton in Asia right. fellowships. Mm -hmm. I got a Princeton in Asia fellowship to teach in Tokyo. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I could put it off for two more years. It was a <laughs> two-year fellowship. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So I went to Japan for two years. That's sort of when the notion of becoming a travel writer began to take shape. I actually, my first travel story to ever be published was a piece that I'd written in a nonfiction class I took in grad school. And it was about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, which I'd done this summer between Greece and Virginia, where I went to graduate school. So I'd written this piece about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And before I went to Japan, I wrote letters to a bunch of editors in New York saying, I'm going to be in Japan for two years. You know, I'd love to be your Tokyo-based correspondent if you need mm -hmm. someone. <laughs> you know, totally naive about how the world worked. I, I wrote to the New Yorker and Harper's oh, and wow. the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> Those are big titles. Shooting low. <laughs> um, yeah, who knows? And, and I got back really nice letters from people saying basically things like, thank you very much, we have four Pulitzer Prize winners yeah. in Asia right now, so <laughs> we don't really need your services, but thank you for offering. But a few people wrote back and said, if you're going to be in New York before you go to Japan, stop by. We'd love to talk mm -hmm. to you. And we, we're not interested in having you be our correspondent, but we'd be happy to talk to you. So I immediately invented a trip to New York and said, oh, it just turns out I am going to be in New York yeah. from like August 1st to 31st. So right. if you have any time <laughs> during that window, I'd be happy to meet with you. And I lived in Connecticut, so okay. it wasn't really you hard for me. To, I could make it a day trip and say, oh yeah, well, I'm in New York all week right. and it's wonderful to have a chance to meet with you. <laughs> and one of the places was Mademoiselle Magazine, hmm. of which I was not an avid reader, but yeah. they worked with young journalists. They had something called the, I forget, the, like the college editor competition or something, okay. where they would have a summer where undergraduates were chosen to help edit an issue of the magazine, and I sort of knew about them through that. 
And I met with the travel editor at Mademoiselle. For all of these meetings, I had brought my Kilimanjaro story with me, and I just dropped it off as a writing sample, basically. Yeah. So I did that with them as well. And I went to Tokyo. And when I arrived in Tokyo, this was back in the day before the internet, there was a telegram waiting for me in Tokyo from Mademoiselle Magazine. (laughs) saying, a hole opened up in our November issue, and we put your Kilimanjaro story in it. Oh, that's so Hope nice. Hope you don't mind. Wow. <laughs> so, so that was my first published so travel story. I love that. And I went, oh, that's interesting. But I still didn't think about being a travel writer until later on, near the end of my second year, I began writing query letters to places and travel and leisure in the magazine called mm-hmm. Signature, which was the mm-hmm. precursor to Condé Nast Traveler. And I got a couple of assignments, and I began writing stories for the Japan Airlines in-flight magazine. Mm-hmm. And this sort of switch finally clicked in my head where I'd been writing poetry for years and years and years and sending it to the New Yorker, mm-hmm. and somehow the New Yorker wasn't publishing my work. I'm mm-hmm. not sure why. So I'd get these nice little yellow rejection notes back. Suddenly I was writing travel stories and getting published, and I went, oh, huh. Yeah. I love to travel, and I love to write. And I could do them together as a profession? That's mm-hmm. crazy. So I began to focus somewhat on travel writing. Not giving up poetry, but focusing more on travel writing. And then I came back to the States, and it's a really, really long and convoluted tale, but after I came back to the States, I ended up getting the job of the travel editor at the San Francisco Examiner newspaper who was taking a one-year leave of absence. They needed somebody to take her place for a year. And through this incredibly serendipitous succession of encounters and things happening, yeah. I ended up having getting her job for a year. That's amazing. And then, so I really was a travel writer, and that was it. I've been a travel writer ever since. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And isn't that the way that it works? It's just things start falling in place. You put it out there and keep that intention, and it'll fall in place. You just got to stick with it. Yeah, that's totally really. how it works. I mean, every... Pretty much every successful travel writer I know did not start out their lives thinking I'm going to be a travel writer. That's right. Yeah. They love writing, they love travel, and it somehow just coalesced at some point mm-hmm. and they thought, oh, I can do this mm-hmm. professionally. You just feel your way along. You do. You <laughs> and do. it eventually falls in, in right, place. So. Right. You follow your passion and exactly. suddenly things fall into place. Exactly. So let's talk about this wonderful new anthology, mm-hmm. Better Than Fiction, Better Than Fiction, True Travel Tales from Great Fiction Writers. Right. You have edited many anthologies. Yeah. This is my seventh anthology for Lonely know. Planet now. <laughs> I really love these books. It's yeah. such a joy to put them together. The idea for this one was great fiction writers. Let's approach people who love to in, you know, invent worlds and talk about imagined experiences and ask them to write about their most moving true experiences on the road. And drawing up the list of writers was really, really fun. And I just contacted people and gave them the idea and said, do you have a story you'd like to tell? And I was incredibly gratified by the response. A lot Mm -hmm. of really great writers, Joyce Carol Oates, Francis Mays, Alexander McCall Smith, Peter Matheson, Taya Obrecht. Kurt Anderson. There's a really great lineup of people in the book. And so editing these people was a joy. It was just fantastic. And they all had this incredibly rich diversity of experiences to talk about. 
the settings are all around the world, the themes are all, some are falling in love, some are being incredibly challenged, some are taking hallucinogenic drugs and getting lost. Right, and in Peru. Or, yeah. <laughs> so Sounds similar to some of my experiences. <laughs> exactly. We've all been there. Yeah. So it was fantastic to be the editor mm-hmm. of this just like rich stew of great travel stories. And I'm really, really pleased with the book. I think as a it's like a literary work. It's maybe the best anthology I've edited. So oh, it's very nice. exciting. Yeah. Okay, so you have edited all of these anthologies, which is so lovely. But when are you going to write your own travel <laughs> memoir? I'm waiting, Doc. <laughs> right, me too. I'm waiting for that. What I've recently begun thinking, which is sort of a version of what you just said, is the problem for me has been that I've already written the stories that I wanted to write about pretty much all of the travels I've ever Mm -hmm. done because as a full-time travel writer and editor I take a trip I write the best story Mm -hmm. you know I've been incredibly lucky that most of my life I've been my own editor yeah so I have this incredibly understanding editor who allows (laughs) me to write pretty much whatever I want to write and so I've written the stories from each trip that I kind of wanted to write from that trip Mm -hmm. so in a way I feel like I've already done my memoir, but it's in all these yeah. discrete, disparate pieces. So I've been thinking my project for this year, actually, is to put together an anthology of the quote-unquote best of Don George. Oh, wonderful. Which would be a very slim anthology, but... I doubt I, that. I want, to, <laughs> I want to gather together the most meaningful pieces to me mm-hmm. over the whole course of my however many, you know, 20, 25 years of writing, and then sort of stitch them together with beginning notes or end notes or sort of contextualizing notes. So it won't just be a straight anthology where it's this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. It'll be, so this was what was happening at this period in my life. And this particular story, the way I got there was this. What it meant to me was that. And what it led to is this. So it will be an anthology that will be kind of a living new creation because it won't just be the pieces as they dryly have appeared through the years, but they'll be interwoven with my comments written now about how these pieces sort of fit into the bigger picture puzzle of my life. Mm. That would be wonderful. That's also similar to, have you seen Rolf Potts? Yeah, Marco well, exactly. Polo didn't go there. Yeah, yeah. I was, that was one of the things I was thinking of. Yeah. And, and Sarah Wheeler just came out with an anthology that sort of does the same thing too, that has notes interstitial mm-hmm. notes the around commentary. The, yeah exactly yeah. so it becomes a almost an autobiographical anthology okay and i'm really excited about that so really, that's really your project for that. this that's year that's my big project for this year uh, this is great <laughs> so now and you're hearing it first oh wonderful <laughs> So let's talk also about Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been a fixture in your life for 21 years? Yeah, this is the 22nd year this year. That's great. Tell me a little bit about that. It's in August. Is it every August? Mid-August, for four days in mid-August. So that began when I was the travel editor at the Examiner and Chronicle in San Francisco. Book Passage is a very wonderful travel-oriented bookstore based in Corte Madeira in Marin County, near San Francisco. And the owner of Book Passage, who I didn't know at the time, called me up 22 years ago and said, I have this crazy idea and you're probably going to hate it, but what if we did a travel writers conference here at the bookstore? What do you think? And she says now that she was really intimidated and frightened and, you know, could hardly pick up the phone to call me, but did, because I'm clearly such an intimidating person. I know. I am frightened. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) Right. 
So I said, I think that's a wonderful idea. Let's do it. And I thought it would be great to get Jen Morris because I love Jen Morris. Mm -hmm. I think she's an amazing writer. I think she's sort of the queen of travel writing. So I called her up and asked her if she would come and, and be the, the first guest of honor at the first mm -hmm. Book Passage conference. And she said, oh, I'd be delighted to. <laughs> and so it all sort of took shape. And it started out quite small. And now it's you know, blossomed into this four-day conference, about 30, we say, faculty members and about 120, 130 students, morning workshops, afternoon panels, evening events. It's really, really become one of the highlights of my year every mm -hmm. year now. And it's actually launched a lot of successful travel writers, yeah, which is stunning to me, mm -hmm. truly incredible. And I feel sort of like the, the papa of this creation that just has taken on a life of its own and a, and a world and a community of its own. And now, in retrospect, it's one of the most fulfilling things I've done in my life. And yeah. it's just amazing and wonderful to me to be able to look back and say, I've helped grow this community of people. And yeah. I'm so grateful for the energy that I've gotten from the mm -hmm. conference and how I learn something new every single year. It's just... It's like a great gift for me. And you really see it in so many travel writers' uh, books, their acknowledgement section. Yeah. So many Don George mentions. <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> so, That's nice. Yeah. And now you are going on a wonderful trip to Japan, yes, aren't I you? Yes, I am. I am. That's very <laughs> And that's exciting. with GOX? Yeah, with Geographic Expeditions, GOX. It's called A Journey Through Ancient Japan, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's going to Kyoto and Shikoku. And Shikoku is the smallest of the four main Japanese islands. It's a place where many Westerners don't go. They miss mm -hmm. it. It happens to be where my wife is from. So I know mm -hmm. the island really well. I've been there dozens of times. And I love it. It's pristine Japan. It's a part of Japan that really hasn't changed that much in decades. So we'll go to Kyoto and we'll have a few days there to explore the back alleys and the old temples that people don't go to, the sort of off the beaten path Kyoto. And then we'll go to Shikoku, which is truly off the beaten path. And we're going to go along the coast through traditional fishing villages. And there's a great sacred 88 temple pilgrimage route on Shikoku, which is what it's most famous for. And we'll do some of those temples. We're going into the Ia Valley, which is in the interior. It's this very lush green valley. There's a 300-year-old preserved farmhouse where we're going to stay. There's this great outdoor onsen hot spring where we'll soak. It's really, really wonderful. I love it. And not many people know it, so I'm going to introduce people to my oh. favorite part of Japan. I love that. When was the <laughs> last time you've been there? Two years ago. Okay. I wonder why people don't... Do they just not know about this place because it's so small and off the beaten path or it's why don't people go pretty much that it's yeah. small and off the beaten path there's only a couple of marquee attractions there mm -hmm. there's one garden that's considered one of the three best gardens in japan and there's a great bath complex that's very famous in japan but mm -hmm. it's not the kind of marquee attractions that uh, americans associate with japan and mm -hmm. so you have to be a little bit more intrepid they speak English there, but not as easily as in a lot of other places in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to be more intrepid and independent as a traveler to go mm -hmm. there. It hasn't been written about very much. It's just mm -hmm. sort of remained a secret in a way. And I think once people discover it, they'll think, oh my God, how did this not yeah. be discovered earlier than this? 
because it really is there's a country kindness there there's a a sense of pace that's much more old japan it's fishing villages and farming towns and rice paddies and mountains and it's beautiful and the people are beautiful the people are really mm-hmm. kind and old style japanese and so yeah once people see it they're going to love it yeah it sounds perfect. All right. Well, are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? I think I am. Okay. <laughs> what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Well, to my mind, the best travel book of all time, lots of travel books make me want to do that. And I write a book review column for National Geographic Travelers, so every month I find at least one book that makes me want to do that. So it could be a very long answer to that question, but... My favorite book of all time is The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson. Mm -hmm. I just think that's an amazing book on lots of, so many levels. It's a great travel narrative. It's a great book about Buddhism. It's a great book about human relations. It's just got so many layers and it's so beautiful. So that's the book that if I had one book that I could say has been my inspiration, Mm -hmm. that's the book. I love that book. What destination do you consider a best-kept secret? Hmm, yes, the best-kept secret. Well, so there's a there's a region of Italy. There's a, the biggest lake in Italy, actually, is called Lake Garda. Mm-hmm. And it's not that well-known. Like, Lake Como is a lot better known, and people right. go there and vacation there. But I spent some time in the Garda region, and it was very wonderful. It's not that mm-hmm. far from Venice. And it's kind of like Tuscany, but it's not discovered the way Tuscany is. Mm. So to my mind, that's a great place to go. That's a place I would tell people to go to get the best of Italy. And, you, know, mm-hmm. you wander into any little tiny restaurant and have the meal of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really full of history. And that's a great place. And then I think, even though it's very much in the news these days, Bhutan is another place. Oh, I'd love to go to Bhutan. I would love to go to Bhutan, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's definitely still a treasure that hasn't opened itself entirely to the world yet. Mm-hmm. I like that. What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? One answer to that question for me is Paris. I just think Paris is, of all the cities in the world, Paris yeah. is amazing. And mm-hmm. Paris is where my life changed and I decided to become a travel writer. I think Paris is an amazing place. There are so many sacred places that I've been that I think are hugely important and one that had a huge influence on me is Ayers Rock is Uluru yeah in Australia mm-hmm. that's just such an extraordinary experience to be there and watch the sunrise and it gets lit up as if from within it just turns this magical orange red color that's one place I just came back from Easter Island and that was really yeah. extraordinary and I think everybody should go there too because mm-hmm. that was an amazing sense of communing with the past so those are those are a few. There's so many amazing places, so many sacred places in the world that I think people can go and discover some rich vein of the human spirit that it's important to tap into. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you because I was in both locations in 2011, and there's just something to it. I didn't think you were this... in Easter Island. Yeah, you were. Yeah, and Iris Rock, Uluru. Wow. Yeah, and actually, it's funny. Easter Island was just a lucky stopover. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. It's I not could, really on the way from anywhere to anywhere. Yeah, I was. I either could go to L.A. or, or through Easter Island. <laughs> I'm like, that's a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so really? that and then also um, Uluru. It's just you can't yeah. describe until you're there what it feels like. Right. There's something to that place. Totally. There's a, a spirit there. Yeah. Both of those places... 
there are places that are so iconic, you've seen hundreds of photographs of yeah. them. And I was a little bit worried with both that the reality wouldn't measure up yeah. to, because for years and years they'd both been living in my mind. And then you get there and then you see the Moai and they're like, oh my mm. God, there's a, a mana here. You know, there's mm-hmm. a spirit power here that's un, it's like make, made my hair stand on yeah. end. And the same with Uluru. I remember the dawn at Uluru was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had huh. on the planet. It's just, you feel connected with the earth in a way that you don't in everyday life. So, yeah. yeah. Huh. Now, what and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Probably a meal that I describe in the introduction to one of the anthologies that I did. A movable feast? Or? Maybe a movable, yeah, a okay. movable feast. It was, it was a very, very fresh sashimi meal in Japan. It was in a small village, and I was sort of the guest of honor in this village because very few foreigners went there, and they ceremoniously took me to this restaurant, and there was a, a crowd of expectant people watching me when they brought <laughs> this dish and put it in front of me, and it was a filleted fish. And I put my chopsticks into, you know, to take a piece of the sashimi, and the fish jumped. Oh, no. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> right. So it was like the freshest sashimi I've ever eaten. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those awful traveler moments when you're on stage, basically, yeah. and you could totally deny the local culture and say, I can't eat this. Or you could go with the flow and say, hmm, this is, yeah. this is a new experience. This is interesting. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I guess I'll see what this is all about. Mm. And, you know, so I did it a second time with the chopsticks and the fish jumped again. And I just said, okay, you've just got to do this. Yeah. You've just got to do it. So I put my chopsticks in, plopped it in my mouth, full of a thousand different conflicting emotions. And, you know, it did taste really good. Yeah. It's sort of awful to say that it tasted really good. And the whole restaurant burst into applause when they saw <laughs> me do that. And... Yeah, it's one of those moments in travel when there's no right and there's no wrong, and you yeah. just sort of go. You just go with it. Yeah. <laughs> now, what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how do you think other travelers could avoid it? My most nerve-wracking experience was probably when I was in Cairo, and I love to wander. When I get to a city, I just get lost. That's basically my way of getting to know a place, is getting lost. And in, on this particular getting lost expedition... I really did everything wrong. I mean, whenever I, apparently, in retrospect, whenever I had a choice to go right or go left, which would be the more dangerous choice, going mm-hmm. left, I went left. And so I ended up in a really run-down, decrepit, surly neighborhood. And I couldn't figure out how to get out. And every alleyway I walked down seemed to get narrower and narrower. And I was literally stepping over the legs of guys sitting in their stoops and sort of eyeing my watch enviously and I really began to feel like this is stupid and nobody knows you're here and anything could happen. Mm -hmm. These these gentlemen don't look happy. Mm -hmm. They look like they would be really willing to pretty much do whatever they needed to to get my watch or my wallet or whatever. I just felt like this is, you're in trouble here. And then miraculously, at a moment when I stopped and I was sort of looking around thinking, what am I going to do? This little child appeared and just literally just took my hand and turned me around and walked me back out of the neighborhood that I'd gotten into. 
and walked and walked and walked, holding my hand. And we got to this big main square. And I looked around and I realized that I, I knew exactly where I was now and I knew how to get back to my hotel. And in the moment that I looked around and recognized that I was okay, I had dropped his hand. I turned around to say thank you and he was gone. Yeah. He just like melted into the crowd huh. or disappeared. Yeah. So that was a very tense moment for me. And it had been a tense moment, I mean. And then the moment of my like redemption, you know, this angel had come out of nowhere to save me. It was really, really an amazing experience. Hmm. So I'm not sure what the moral of that story is. I probably should have stopped when I felt that I was getting into the wrong part of town. I probably should have just stopped and turned around and walked back the way I'd walked and retraced my steps, but I had gotten so turned around that yeah. I tried doing that and it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe the moral is just trust the universe and it will mm -hmm. take care of you. I had a similar experience in Morocco. Really? Yeah. And even with a young gentleman coming up and actually leading me back to my Riyadh and it, it was a miracle because I was clearly in trouble yeah. just by getting lost. I mean, it's, it's right. windy and, and you're looking at all the sides and then things right. lead to you know right. other things so right. yeah but yeah. you always get your way out of it yes hopefully <laughs> <laughs> so far so, so good. far so good <laughs> what passport stamp still eludes you besides bhutan uh, besides bhutan <laughs> a myanmar mm. i really want to go to myanmar that, mm -hmm. that's bhutan and you know myanmar i think are on the top of my list right now yeah those are good what is your most cherished souvenir and why that's really tough. I guess three. I have a piece of rock that I took from the area around Uluru. Not mm -hmm. from Uluru itself, but just as a reminder of the substantialness of that experience. Mm -hmm. A little tiny rock that I brought back from Australia. That's my miniature Uluru that I have. <laughs> I like that. I have a little tiny reproduction of the rock garden at Rioanji, the temple at Rioanji, which is, to me, an incredibly sacred place, a really, really special place because there's 15 rocks and they're arranged in a way that you can't see them all from any vantage point. No matter where you stand on the platform that overlooks the rock garden, you can't see all the rocks. So it's this really great lesson that you have to find it and complete it in your mind. Yeah. It's not, you can't see it out there, you have to see it inside you. Hmm. And for me, that's what travel is also all about, is you, you travel internally at the same time as you're traveling externally. Mm -hmm. So that would be one. And I just brought back a little Moai uh, ah. statue from Easter Island. What does yours look like? Because I have one too. Yeah. <laughs> Mine's a little guy with a hat and he has eyes. He's one of the ones that actually okay. have the eyes. And what's it made out of? Basalt, I think. Basalt. Huh. Okay. Basalt. Mine's wood. Oh, yours is wood. Without the eyes. Okay. So a little different. A little but different. But yeah. I had to have one. Me that too. <laughs> and I, I got it from. It's a place not far from the town, Yohangaroa. Mm -hmm. It's within walking distance of the town. There's one Moai, and then there's a group of Moai, and one of the group of Moai has the eyes. Yeah. And there's a woman there with a like a card table selling these things, and I began to talk to her. She didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Spanish, but we had a really great conversation. <laughs> her family is sort of the guardians of that particular ahu, that particular huh. sacred space. So she was telling me that for generations and generations, her family has been the guardians of this space. So that story alone made me feel really happy about getting this 
statue from her. Mm-hmm. So now whenever I look at the statue, I remember the statue, and I also remember her. Mm-hmm. There's a nice backstory there. I like that. What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? Huh. I'm not sure this is the most interesting, but I love that the Japanese don't wear their shoes in their homes, mm-hmm. and that was new to me when I first went there. So I've incorporated that into my life. On a much more profound level, there's something about Japan that still eludes me, but it's the Japanese have a way of incorporating dependence into their life that I found as an American extremely challenging. Yeah. You know, we're all about independence. Uh-huh. I can do it myself. I don't need your help. I'll go it alone. Yeah. For the Japanese, that's a really bizarre concept. And they're like, why is that a good thing? Why, why is that struggle a bad on your own? Why, why do you do that? The point in that? Like, yeah. And to their mind, it's a small island. They've existed for centuries. The art of getting along has become really finely interwoven into the, mm-hmm. the fabric of Japanese culture, and it's all about getting along. And so I've always wanted to try to incorporate that more into my life, to be more embracing of dependence yeah. as, a, as a virtue, as a strength. And I still am working at it. But it's really interesting to me that... that as an American, that was so profoundly sort of unsettling and odd yeah. to me when I first got to Japan that it's all about dependence. How weak, you know, yeah. how weak that is. <laughs> and how in Japan that's viewed as such a strength and having to assert yourself independently over and over again just seems crazy to them. Hmm. It's just So, yeah, cultivating that art of the ability to be dependent seems like a really wonderful tradition that I'd like to incorporate into my life the same way I take my shoes off when I walk in the door. Yeah. I'd like to be able to put on my dependence I love a little that. bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? Know where you're going in, a se- in the sense that n- know like the history and the culture a little bit before you go somewhere. Have an idea about the cultural traditions and practices so you don't do something wrong. And then throw yourself open to serendipity mm-hmm. and let the world guide you. Let the fortuitousness of what happens to you on the road take over and really open your heart up to a place because the more you open your heart up to a place, the more the place opens itself up to you. Mm-hmm. I've seen that you know, over and over and over and over again in my travels. And you'll see people who are having an awful time and it's, it's because they're, they're inflicting an awful time on the destination where yeah. they are. I mean, they're being awful. Yeah. And so, of course, they're having an awful time. But if you go and you open yourself up to the people and the place and just let it infuse you with joy and delight and wonder, it just comes back to you a hundredfold. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And lastly, what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? All you need is love. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> I think I've heard that before somewhere. So but... <laughs> yeah. It kind of goes back to what I just said, but I think that we're all so in common. All human beings are basically essentially so common, so similar. There's so much more that binds us together than that, that separates us. And so... Just approaching the world with that sense of commonality and love. I mean, loving everything, loving the wonders of of every single living thing and how Mm -hmm. amazing a plant is or how amazing a person is, how amazing a a tradition of bowing or a tradition of shaking hands. I mean, really, if you approach it with the right mindset, it's all pretty amazing and wonderful. 
And when you do that, you sort of sprinkle the world with fairy dust. And I think it comes back to you in a big way. And I think that I'm on this planet, you're on this planet, we're all sort of on this planet to figure out how to get along better and evolve, become more enlightened human beings. And loving is absolutely an essential part of that. So that's what I that's what I've learned. You know, I'm not surprised to hear you say this because not only are you an amazing travel writer, a huge fixture in travel writing, but you're also known as one of the most friendly people. <laughs> <laughs> out there in this career and so I really appreciate you you talking to me today and uh, <laughs> yeah it's just Don George the legend <laughs> <laughs> I've loved every minute of it <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> didn't I tell you Don's a gem of a person make sure to pick up his third edition of Lonely Planet's Guide to Travel Writing released just this month at all major bookstores and on Amazon and follow along on the wonderful journey that Don provides with his words. You can read his blog at www.don-george.com or follow him on Twitter at Don underscore George. And you can also find info about his wonderful Travel Writers and Photographers Conference at www.bookpassage.com. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.